I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is no better group of plants for flower power than forms of the shrubby potentilla. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to help with some of your gardening quandaries. As we look ahead... To what's to come in 2020, I'm joined today by someone who I love to talk to about all things horticultural. He's an author, journalist, editor and above all else, a great gardening mind. It's Graham Clark. My thanks to Sutton Seeds of Torquay, sponsors of this podcast. I had a press release from the Royal Horticultural Society, I see it even made the Times, saying that gardens in 2020 will be left a a bit rough for wildlife. I just don't understand the Royal Horticultural Society anymore. I mean, I've got rats in the garage, mice in the polytunnel have just eaten uh, a whole batch of scabious little devils eating the middles right out of them. A mole has run right the way through underneath it all, lifting all the soil. I've got pigeons oh, and a fox digging a hole. I can tell you, I could do with a little less wildlife in my garden. They're making me quite wild in quite the wrong way. But there we are. Uh, things still continue to happen. I uh, see that Toddington Garden Centre in Gloucestershire is going to have to close after the railway landlords have failed to renew their lease. Oh, and for those of you that are quite good with a camera, Bent's Garden and Home, up near Manchester, kick off uh, the new decade with the launch of uh, their annual photographic competition. They're looking for the very best image of nature that captures the beauty of surroundings. Boy. You know, there are some fantastic pictures of our uh, attractive gardens and beautiful plants. So uh, I'll be very interested to see the winners of that particular competition. Do you know there's always something to learn? As you've heard from me several times, we're planting an awful lot of bulbs at Hyde Hall. And of course it's quite demanding, you know. You've got to get the trowel there and make a hole for each one. And if you're planting a thousand... It'll take me best part of an hour to get those even into reasonable soil. And I was explaining that to Bob Sweet, who's the uh, manager of BBC Gardener's World Live Flower Show, uh, which is held at the NEC each June. And I was telling him I had this formidable heap of bulbs to plant. And he said, oh, well, uh, he was in Canada at a retail nursery that uh, planted a lot of bulbs into their surrounding grounds to make it look attractive. And he said, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Uh, And his relative said, uh, well, no, I've got this auger. And he produced what I can best describe as a a 9 to 12 inch long sort of corkscrew that fitted into the chuck of a hand drill. And he just switched the hand drill on and drilled the hole and dropped the bulb in. It's amazing. 
that I've been in the bowl business for more than 60 years and I'd never come across anything like that. And, and the other remarkable thing about this day and age is I went on to uh, the internet, found Amazon, and lo and behold, they were offering uh, two or three. I ordered one and within 24 hours it was with me. Only problem was that the battery's down on my hand drill, so I'm still planting them with a the trowel. But, but, but I'll report later. I need to get... The one I got is just 12 inches, 9 to 12 inches long, and I need to get one with a long stem so that I can drill the holes without bending down. It'd be pretty useful for planting all kinds of things, you know, even dropping the potatoes in, I would think. But more news on that after we have a bit more experience. When it comes to seasonal advice... Well then, now's a good time to pay some attention to fruit trees. All the leaves are down, and the apples and pears especially, it's a good time to prune them. In a perfect world, you'd get somebody to show you how to do it if you haven't done it before or you're not sure. And the one rule is, if in doubt, don't. Because once you've cut it off, you can't very easily stick it back. The message with young trees, and I'm talking trees of two, three, four years old, bush trees just grown up on a single stem about a metre high, then the growth that was made last year needs to be cut back by about a half to two thirds. If you do that, then the piece left will produce two or three shoots that go out like a spoke in a wheel, and then the next year you do the same, and very slowly you fill that semi-globe of space with branches. That's what you want to do. And that early pruning is essential. If you get a tree which is two or three years old and has a really strong outward growth and you don't prune it, the chances are it will just grow at the tip. And if it's a tip-bearing variety, it may even just set fruit there. And then it just bends over and most of the stem is left blank, uh, and the branch framework is a right mess. So I'm afraid you need to grit your teeth, and with young trees, that young growth uh, coming from the end of most branches needs to be cut back by about a half to a third. You'd think if you were buying a container tree on a garden centre that they would have done it for you, but there's a problem there. If the person on the plant centre... Uh, does prune the trees of course they only look half the size so they don't look worth so much so they tend to leave them unpruned worth finding a really good garden center if you're buying a tree and when you buy it say can you help me with the pruning where should i prune this now uh, and they can show you once you've got really established trees then the whole thing becomes uh, much trickier because we need to know what the cultivar is Some are what we call spur fruiting. They produce lots of little uh, knobbly short bits that carry spurs of fruit up the branch. And others uh, produce flower bud on last year's wood. Uh, And there we do what is called renewal pruning. You've got a branch, a shoot comes out from it. You summer prune that by cutting off about a half and then flowering buds are formed all along the piece that is left. Once that does flower and fruit, then you can cut it right back to about an inch or two inches. It's what we call renewal pruning. 
because you've cut off that piece of wood that carried fruit and the new growth, you summer prune, that then forms flower bud and the renewed wood carries the crop in two years' time. Much easier if you can get somebody to show and explain this to you or go and visit a garden which has some really good well-pruned trees and just see what they've done. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My interview today is a very long-term acquaintance. I hope I can call him a friend. Uh, Graham Clark, one of our uh, most distinguished and uh, well-informed gardening journalists. Graham, you're down in a pool, I think, aren't you in Hampshire? How's life down there today? Yes, it's actually Dorset. And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a bit rainy and miserable today, but uh, it's, it's lovely being down in this part of the world because I uh, first came down here, I think it was 1979, and uh, been down here ever since, even though I'm a Londoner born and bred. Uh, so no doubt we'll find out in a second. Yes, because I was going to ask how you started off in this uh, horticultural world, because I think you have a pretty extensive experience one way or another. Um, I suppose, I suppose, yes, you could say that. Uh, I, w- I was not actually born in a rose garden, but pretty much near enough. Uh, I was born in Paddington General Hospital. I won't say which year, uh, but my father at the time was a superintendent of Regent's Park in London. And we lived in a house in the middle of Queen Mary's Rose Garden, uh, which many of your listeners and readers would uh, probably know is uh, one of the finest parks in London. And in terms of horticulture, it's it's one of the finest uh, parks for horticulture as well, because the Rose Garden, which in those days had uh, something like 30,000 roses in there, it it equaled the the Royal National Rose Society Garden uh, in many ways. And it was known worldwide for its uh, roses, and anyone could go along and see them at any time. Uh, it was entirely free and open to all. So yes, I was surrounded with uh, plants and flowers from a, you know the earliest age possible, really. I remember um, 
gardener working there called Miller Gold. Yes. Would that have been your father's time or pre your yeah, father's no, he, time? Indeed. He, uh, uh, yeah, I remember him very fondly. He was my dad's boss. Uh, my dad was called the assistant superintendent, and I think he first went to Regent's Park in 1952 or thereabouts. And um, uh, there was a chap called David Austin. No, not David Austin. Charles Austin, I think his name was, before that. But then Miller Gold came along, and he was uh, one of the most... Uh, celebrated rosarians uh, of his of the era and um, we're talking about the mid 20th century uh, and he was a, a very dura scotsman and uh, he was a lovely lovely man um and he lived in a house large house in the middle of regent's park and we lived just around the corner from him in a in an equally large house uh but uh, probably slightly less grand than than his an unbelievable start in the horticultural world. I mean, Millegault, I think, got more awards of merit from the RHS for plants than anybody else. Every fortnightly show he would turn up with stuff and I think staged an enormous collection of potatoes. But that's all by the by. Mm. Uh, uh, <laughs> from that foundation, then where did you go? Uh, well, uh, we had the house in, in the middle of Regent's Park and then... Um they wanted to pull that house down. It was a lovely old rambling Victorian villa house that you can see in, in many of these parks around the country. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous architectural um, uh, masterpiece in many ways. But uh, the powers that be, back in 1963 this was, decided that they didn't want it anymore. It was old-fashioned and they wanted a brand-new modern copper-roofed rose garden restaurant on the site. So we had to move out of that house and I can barely just about remember it. Um, and they built this uh, newfangled rose garden restaurant there. So we had to move to a second house, which was a much, it was a brand new, very small in comparison uh, lodge uh, on the edge of the park, uh, close to the London Zoo. And my abiding memory with that is uh, being so close to the zoo, we could hear the animals. Uh, and if, if we heard the uh, the fire engines or the, the, the police cars or the ambulances in London in Camden Town, which is the nearest sort of shopping area, uh, the, it would set the wolves off. They would think it was a, a rival pack of wolves somewhere in, in Camden, and they would start howling, and so we'd have this cacophony of noise uh, all around us. But anyway, we were in that house for a few years, and then my father got a promotion and moved to Hyde Park. So we moved from Regents to Hyde, and uh, for three or four years we lived in a, uh, it was a lodge right on the edge of Marble Arch, uh, if you know Marble Arch at all, you'll know it's, it's basically a big roundabout with this big marble arch in the centre. And our house was literally 100 yards or so from the, the archway itself. And the buses and taxis going around Marble Arch by the million, as they do every day, they would look at my house because on the front of it there was a clock. And it's still there today. You can see it as you drive around. Uh, and this clock they would judge their times by. Certainly the bus drivers would know whether they were early or late for their particular run. And the, the mechanism for that clock was in my bedroom. <laughs> I can't wait, Graham, the next time I'm there to have a look. You'll yeah. have to. It's called Cumberland Gate Lodge. Right. And it's an interesting building in itself in that uh, when it was built back in the 1800s, it was actually further down Park Lane than where it sits today. And uh, back in, I think, the 1920s, they decided to move it uh, because it, it wasn't sited very well, but they decided to move it to Marble Arch. And they took it down brick by brick, numbered them, and rebuilt it at Marble Arch. But the, what I haven't told you is that that building first saw the light of day back in the uh, 1800s as a public convenience. 
So um, <laughs> I, I, it was a very grand one, and I'm told it was only to be used by the gentry. So um, <laughs> you couldn't just go and spend a penny there. You had to be upper class to do it. <laughs> what an amazing story. I know. I can't, you know, I can't wait to get back to Marble Arch. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't tell me before, so oh, I no, could have I'm looked out for that. that. Yeah. But then um, once you left that sort of upbringing, where was your training? Well, um, being surrounded by plants and flowers and trees and shrubs and grass and lawns and stuff, um, it, it was fairly obvious that I, I wasn't academically the most brilliant of people, so it was fairly obvious that I wanted to get into the world that my dad was in. So, yes, I, I decided on horticulture as a career, and um, I, I was fortunate enough to be selected to become a student at Wisley at uh, the Royal Horticultural Society Garden in Surrey. And to be honest, that was the best start that I could have ever had. Um, you know, two years there as a student and you see quality horticulture at its very best. Uh, I love Wisley to bits um, and it's now nearly half a century since I was there, sadly, uh, as a student. But I go back every year and I just see the, the changes they've made there and it, it just gets better and better. But, but what a start, really. Well, goodness. You know, on a gardening foundation like that, Graham, it's just unbelievable to me. Yeah, pretty, a pretty yeah. good heritage. I mean, the, the one thing I, I'd have to say is that, um, uh, you know, at Wisley, um, yeah, up until the time I went to Wisley, uh, I'd only ever seen horticulture from the point of view of, of a park and, and how uh, the horticulture is, is put into a park and gardens and, and, and plants in that way. Uh, but when I went to Wisley, I was actually working in it. I was, I was uh, sort of planting primulas for the first time I was dredging a lake, you know, I was uh, climbing trees on Battleston Hill and getting stuck up them because I didn't know how to untie a piece of rope. Um, <laughs> I worked on the trials grounds at Wisley, uh, doing sort of intensive work on, on the dahlia trials, I remember, and the sweet pea trials, working in the fruit fields. I mean, there's never a fruit tree in a park, so so working on the fruit was was a real eye-opener for me, the strawberry plantation there, the raspberries, the soft fruit and everything. Then working in the greenhouses, which I absolutely adored. A, a lifelong love of fuchsias and pelargoniums came from working in the, uh, the, the greenhouse department at Wisley. So the Wisley experience really took me uh, across all of the different sort of disciplines in gardening from that point of view, as it did for all the students, of course, and from from those, it's like a foundation. You can choose which part of the horticultural world you want to spend the rest of your career in. But I have to say, at that time, I didn't know for one minute that I'd uh, be working in, in publishing, because, strangely enough, that wasn't part of the uh, the Wisley criterion. No, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. So, so where did you go for your first, can I call it, true job? Well, after we left Wisley, um, I, I, I didn't really know what direction to take other than probably amenity gardening which, or amenity horticulture, which is a posh way of saying parks and gardens um, and, and where people can sort of enjoy their amenity time by sort of having a stroll by the lake and having picnics on the grass, that sort of area of horticulture I thought I would go into. Uh, and one of the, the best things that I could have done I actually ended up doing, and that was spending a year 
seeing a whole cycle, a whole 12-month cycle at Buckingham Palace in the garden there. Oh, no, no, um, come on. You can't just keep dropping these names <laughs> like this. What? Regent's Park, Hyde Park, hey, controlling the buses around Marble Arch, <laughs> down to Wisley for three years. What? Now you're going to tell us you're in Buckingham Palace. Yeah, what? I'm afraid so. So I spent a year uh, working in the garden at Buckingham Palace, and that was quite something because, I mean, it's, it's a... It is a private garden. It is amenity gardening from that point of view, but it's a garden that very few people get to see up close, and I was fortunate enough to see it really very closely. The, uh, the head gardener there at the time was a, an old gent called Fred Nutbeam. What a name. <laughs> and, um, and, he, what a, and what a character. Oh, did you know Fred? He, he was a delightful <laughs> character, and let's say eccentric. I think that's a good way of putting it. He barely had a tooth in his head. Um, <laughs> he couldn't see beyond the end of his nose. Um, and he, what he used to do, but, but he ran that place like, the, like an admiral. He, he, was, he was on top of absolutely everything. He first went to Buckingham Palace in the 50s, I think, soon, soon after Her Majesty became Her Majesty. And, um, and she adored him, uh, I'm led to believe. And, and I know that in the time I was there, I saw them together quite a bit in the garden and and he would he would walk around holding this bicycle pushing this bicycle because he used it to to cycle around the gardens and make sure the gardeners were doing what they should be um and he would be wearing his bicycle clips pushing the bike and talking to her majesty as if they were old sort of buddies from years back and uh yeah no great great character and i just loved the fact that he couldn't see we could get away with murder as gardeners, uh, you know, by sort of leaving the odd bit of weed here and there, uh, because he, we knew he wouldn't be able to see it. But the one thing he could see, and I never quite understood why this was the case, he knew that if, uh, if a lawn edge wasn't perfectly perpendicular, he would spot that a mile off, and yet he would miss a few leaves here and a few weeds on the grass and that, that sort of thing. So a bit of a character was our Fred Nutbeam. Indeed, you know, I, I just met him briefly, mm. and, and the toothless description, I'm afraid, come, comes immediately to mind. But yeah, what a character! Yeah. But, but my, my other abiding memories of, of the palace um, in the one year I was there was that um, I would have several conversations with the Queen, which you know is is pretty unusual, and, and what an honour, really. And I, and I was I was digging a rose bed once because they've got quite a good rose garden there, and um, to replace the soil in a rose bed you have to replace a lot of soil because of rose sickness disease apart from anything else, and so I was about sort of four or five foot down in this hole, uh, this huge hole with the dumper truck and everything else, and I was pulling some weeds out or something on my hands and knees I think, and uh, I looked up and there was a set of ankles at uh, at grass level. And, and, of course, I looked up and barely missed looking up her skirt, and there was the Queen. And uh, she just took one look at me and said, Hello. And I said, oh, Your Majesty. She said, Are you digging to Australia? And, uh, you know, what do you say? And I said, It certainly seems like it, Mum. <laughs> uh, and there were one or two other instances where, uh, where our paths crossed. But uh, the, other, the other thing I remember with, with the Palace Gardens is... Uh, is having, at this time of year, sort of from November to sort of March time, in those days there were flamingos in the gardens. They'd been uh, uh, given to the Queen by, uh, by a foreign state, I can't quite remember where, 
Um, but she had, I, I think, maybe 20 or so flamingos in the lake and on the island in the middle of the lake. And at this time of year, you have to make sure there are no flamingos left in the water at the end of the day, because if it freezes overnight and there's a flamingo standing on one leg in a frozen lake, of course, they get stuck. And if there's a gust of wind, then, you know, what would happen? They'd snap over. Good. So you have to make sure the flamingos are out of the water. Um, and so at dusk time, you would get into little rowing boats and effectively shoo them out of the water onto the lake. And after a while, they got to know that this was happening and they, they wouldn't protest. But uh, they would, we'd then have to put them in a pen in the middle of the lake so they didn't get back in the water. And that was a fun thing to do. I never thought I'd end up shooing flamingos in Buckingham Palace Garden. But so this, this life takes you down all kinds of avenues you wouldn't expect. Graham, they're amazing stories. Mm. I mean, have you written an autobiography? Do you know, I've often thought about it, but I'm not well known. And so therefore, who's going to buy a book about someone they don't know's life. Uh, if you're a well-known celebrity, then that's a different matter. But uh, there's certainly a lot of stories there. I suppose if I was a, a James Herriot kind of character and I could embellish it and, and, and make it even funnier than it sometimes really was, then that would be a different story. It's more fiction than uh, autobiography. But uh, maybe I'll think about it. Now, at the outset of this interview, you said... Uh educationally you weren't that brilliant and yet most of your working life has been with a pen and, mm. and as far as I'm concerned you write brilliantly with great authority no, so, right. so were you being too modest there? Uh, well, it's kind, kind of you to say, I mean over the years I have honed the skill I think um, I'm sure when I was at school I, I couldn't put two words together and made sense of them but, but um, I started the writing career back in 1976. I, so I spent a year at Buckingham Palace, then I spent a few months working in the, uh, the intensive glass houses in the middle of Hyde Park, uh, propagating 30,000 uh, pelargonium cuttings and, and working on some exotic plants for display in the House of Commons and things like that, which was quite exciting in itself. Um, but I, then I saw an advertisement in a magazine called Horticulture Week. I think in those days it might have been called Gardener's Chronicle, um, but they changed the name at some point. And I saw this advertisement for a sub-editor required for a magazine called Amateur Gardening. Now, until this point, I think I might have seen the magazine name around or heard of it, because it was a very famous magazine in the world of gardening. But I'd never actually bought a copy, I don't think. So anyway, I applied for this job. I went along to the, the offices, which were in a tall skyscraper on, uh, on the South Bank in London and near the Thames. Uh, and I think probably you went there once or twice as well over, over the time. Um, and, uh, and lo and behold, I got the job. And so in late 1976, I became sub-editor on Amateur Gardening. And that was when I first started realising there's a lot more to this writing lark than, than meets the eye. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it was a while before I was given my first article to write, but I was really honing the skill by taking other people's work, including such illustrious names as Percy Thrower and Arthur Billet in those days, and many, many others, um, and, and kind of polishing them, as we would phrase it, so that it's ready f to go into the, the magazine and, and to be printed. Um, and... Uh, Although these gardeners were brilliant, they knew what they were talking about, they weren't always the best writers, it has to be said. And, and Percy left a lot to be desired when it comes to 
grammar and spelling and punctuation. Uh, and I was pretty good at those things. And so I was able to put sparkle into his copy, as they say. And so I did that for a few years. And um, I suppose in so doing, I, I was able to improve my own writing skills. So it's, it's held me in good stead over the years. Uh, Graham, we're running out of time. Um, I hope I can invite you back because I'd love to discuss your current columns in Amateur Gardening, Gardener's uh, Miscellany. Well, Where on earth do you find all of that quirky, <laughs> interesting stuff week after week? Well, uh, yes, at the moment, the, 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 the column that I'm writing for Amateur Gardening, because I'm pr- pretty much um, sort of semi-retired now, and, and so what I'm doing mainly is, is writing one column for, for the magazine Amateur Gardening, and it's, it's called Miscellany, or Gardener's Miscellany, and uh, it's just anything and everything that, that takes my interest and, and raises a, a kind of a light bulb above my head that I hadn't realised. There are some amazing, weird and wonderful facts out there um, for example, we all know and love Carol Klein on television, and we all know and love Christine Walkden on television. These are both gardening experts that appear on BBC One quite a lot. Well, did you know that Carol Klein was born in a place called Walkden in Manchester? What are the coincidences? Oh, goodness. Um, did you know that <laughs> Tim Smith, who is the, the, the man in charge of the Eden Prophet, he he really was the founder of the Eden Project and also the Lost Gardens of Heligan in Cornwall. Tim Smith is the only person in the world of gardening that has a palindromic name. You can read it backwards and it's the same then as forwards. But <laughs> things like that, they, they fascinate me. Um, they, and they, so, they fascinate me when you found them. Well, <laughs> but I don't know how you keep finding them in such oh, quantity. There yeah. is no shortage of facts, weird facts and, and, and quotes. I love quotes. Uh, Eric Morecambe's favourite quote, as far as I'm concerned, was, uh, um, of course, we all know Eric Morecambe, great wit and comedian. Um, He once said, my neighbour asked if he could use my lawnmower. I told him, of course he could, so long as he didn't take it out of my garden. (laughs) And, you know, things like that, they just are sort of uh, manner for me. And so uh, I've got a huge, I've got 800 books here, and so I've got plenty of material, and I'm never going to run out. And so long may this column continue hopefully (laughs) graham thank you very much for joining us today absolute joy hope to speak to you soon not at all my pleasure and uh and happy new year to everyone my thanks to sutton seeds of torquay sponsors of this podcast and thanks to you for listening enjoy your garden we'll be back next thursday Discover more at sungardening.co.uk Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.